Oh, Terry and Adri, that was so good. Thank you for doing that. Um, I don't think we need to bring a sermon this morning. I think it's already been brought. And I uh, just so appreciate those words. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Scott, one of the pastors. And uh, I just want to say before we jump into sermon this morning is um, I miss you. Miss being in the room with you. Uh, I've been... <laughs> been scrolling through the pictures of you guys watching you and I've already teared up a number of times this morning and uh, just long to be just for simple things to be able to hear you to be able to hear you sing and uh, there is something still powerful about this when we are gathering together and I know that you're singing I see your mouths moving but just that simple lack of sound is I've been really grieving that this morning but uh, um, so kids and parents with kids just for the next 20 minutes I'm going to continue basically what Dice was reading about and what Terry and Adri talked about this morning and I want to start with uh, a quote here this is by Father Emmanuel Katongal and he is uh, that's a great name he's a uh, He's an African Catholic priest and a theologian, and he said this, that the first language of the church in a deeply broken world is not strategy, but prayer. Not strategy, but prayer. And he continues. Saying the journey of reconciliation is grounded in a call to see and encounter the rupture of this world so truthfully that we are literally slowed down. We are called to a space where any explanation or action is too easy, too fast, too shallow. A space where the right response can only be a desperate cry directed to God. We are called to learn the anguished cry of lament. And Terry and Adri talked about that this morning, lament. And what he's not saying is that there's no place for action. Um, he's saying that I think there's some interior work to be done before moving to physical action. And I want to talk a little bit about that morning, this morning, this process of acknowledging evil and injustice, so becoming aware, and then grieving that evil and injustice which is lament. Uh, then acknowledging the place that that evil and injustice lives in us, repentance, and then moving to action out of that place. And uh, man, there's so many reasons to lament. Um, here on my screen are a few. DeAndre Campbell, Jason Collins, Chief Allen Adam, Everett Patrick, Chantelle Moore, Aisha Hudson, Stuart Andrews, Regis Kuczynski Paquette. These are names of Canadians that just in the last three months, these are black and indigenous people who were severely injured or killed in the past three months due to 
police force and brutality. And we know that this type of racism is not just a problem for our neighbors of the south of the border, which we've been getting a lot of news about, but that this country holds such evil and such racism, such injustice. Our country, Canada, which, I mean, it in some surveys or polls has been ranked the top 10 nations for standard of living. I mean, you travel this country, it is beautiful. We we enjoy such a beautiful country yet in those polls it doesn't acknowledge uh, the economic and social well-being of our first nations people and others who are on the margins uh, so the un actually has a different ranking for canada and some rank it as low as 48 or 70 uh, on that list and on this day as nelson acknowledged national indigenous people's day um, I, I want to remember, and you know, I, I also don't want to apologize for being too so heavy, but I acknowledge that this is heavy and uncomfortable, and that's okay. Um, I want to acknowledge the church's part in the oppression and marginalization of Indigenous people in this country. Uh, there was a slogan, civilized to save, that was used by missionaries, actually, to justify colonial pursuits across Canada and the US. One uh, politician said, kill the Indian, save the man. These are real phrases that were embedded into our culture's fabric. In 2015, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada called the, indigenous, uh, the Indian residential school system a uh, cultural genocide. And uh, I was remembering our time this last summer, almost a year ago now, where we did a film series. And one of the films we looked at, if you remember, was Indian Horse. And it is the heartbreaking tale of one boy and his journey through the Canadian residential school system. And uh, the author, Richard Wagamies, he, he describes the effect that these residential schools had on these children. And I'm not, I'm not going to put up a slide, but I want you to listen to these words. Again, really uncomfortable, but important words. He said about the residential school experience, all of the Indian, all of the First Nations, all of the Aboriginal got scraped off through the inflicting of that institutional way on Aboriginal people. And the wounds and scrapings and the scars that resulted from that scraping, that scraping away seeped and bled for generations and caused a great many more psychic wounds than the original ones when people were apprehended. And children who were in those institutions found a sense of isolation and a sense of lostness that nobody should have to find their way out of. And uh, if you haven't read Indian Horse, I highly recommend it to you, as well as this uh, other book here, um, Buffalo Shout, Salmon Cry. Uh, and it is a collection of essays, it's nonfiction, about um, uh, creation, land justice, and life together. Uh, both of those books, I highly recommend them to you.
And this week, as I was uh, just reading the Bible, reading the scriptures, thinking about the heart of the gospel or the way of Jesus, as we often say in our church, I just had this phrase ringing through my mind. It was, God sides with the weak, the oppressed, and the marginalized. God sides with them. I want to throw up another quote here. This is from uh, James Cone, a, a black liberation theologian, theologian, sorry. And uh, James Cone was known for his advocacy with black liberation and liberation theology. If you're not familiar with liberation theology, basically it's theology that is concerned for the poor and political liberation of uh, oppressed peoples. And uh, he said this, to believe in the gospel means creating solidarity with the oppressed. Jesus' cross is God's solidarity with the weak and the lost. And uh, I just want to let you in a little bit behind the scenes here. We've been going through a series uh, called uh, Unordinary Time, just acknowledging the time that we're in, in the church calendar, ordinary time but also that this is not a normal time in our history. Um, and uh, we've chosen partly just due to the emotional strain and energy going elsewhere, not to try and come up with clever ways of creating a sermon series, but to just simply follow the lectionary and the scriptures that are in there. So uh, Nelson, and Blythe and myself, who are part of the teaching team, and we open that up to others as well. We've we've chosen to follow the lectionary. And I just wanted to say a quick word about that, because if you're not familiar with it, like I, I grew up in a non-denominational charismatic church where I didn't learn what the lectionary was until my late, maybe mid-30s. Um, and uh, so I realized for some people, it's not a common uh, thing to understand what the lectionary is. But if you want to look it up, you can check uh, or Google Revised Common Lectionary. It'll give you more information about that. But essentially, it's collecting scriptures and organizing them in a way that we can walk through them systematically through the course of three years. And so there's the Gospels, there's the Old Testament, there's the, the wisdom literature. All of it is organized in a way that we're going to get some uh, through the course of three years. And so this was the, uh, the lectionary readings for this week. And uh, you, I put them up there because you can write them down. You can screenshot if you want to read them later. I'm not going to go through each of them, but I'm going to mention each of them because there was this common thread that just got me so excited uh, about how, even though we hadn't planned, you know, we didn't plan the scriptures we were going to be presenting, that they lined up so well with this theme of God siding with the weak. God coming towards those who are oppressed and marginalized. Um, so if you want more info on the lectionary, talk to Nelson's the guy to talk to really. He's got lots of knowledge on that. I could help a bit. Um, but also I wanted to throw in a tool and this has really helped me because often we get scripture and we're like, what does this even mean? What is the context? What's the original language? I found this to be such a great tool, netbible.org. And it's simple, you can hover over words and it gives you the original language. So I'm not gonna talk a lot about that, but I wanna throw up a tool without, with just 
I don't want to throw up scripture and, and uh, think that you, you can uh, figure it out on your own, but this is a good helpful tool. Uh, so with that in mind, uh, just sense the Spirit's uh, invitation today to focus on this topic through the, the, uh, the lectionary readings. So um, one of them that we heard Dice read this morning, and maybe you caught it or maybe you didn't, was Genesis 21. And I'm going to go through, she read it in the NIV. I'm going to read it in the message. There are some really important things in there, disturbing things as well. So why don't you hop in with me through uh, Genesis chapter 21. I'm going to put it up on the screen, like I said, in the message uh, translation by Eugene Peterson. So it starts out like this in verse 9. One day Sarah saw the son that Hagar the Egyptian had born to Abraham. Poking fun at her son Isaac, she told Abraham, get rid of this slave woman and her son. No child of this slave is going to share inheritance with my son Isaac. I don't know how that makes you feel. I feel a deep sense of uncomfort when I read that. I, this week I felt angry reading it. I, like, a, like a mother, like my mother saying some kind of inappropriate or racial, racist statement. I, I felt like, Sarah, you can't say that. You can't say get rid of, rid of this slave woman. And you can't say slave woman. I know this is an English translation or paraphrase, but just it angered me. And even the disregard for human life, get rid of this slave woman, get rid of them. And then we continue the next, uh, jump down to verse 11. The matter gave great pain to Abraham. After all, Ishmael was his son. So a bit of background, if you don't know the story of Abraham, God promised him a great generate, a great nation to come out of him and from his line. And later would be fulfilled through Isaac. But before Isaac was this son, Ishmael, who was born from their servant or their slave. And uh, Ishmael was there. How do, you, how do you acknowledge Ishmael? And I just love what the scripture says. So jump down to verse 14. Abraham got up early. This is his response to all this. Abraham got up early the next morning, got some food together and a canteen of water for Hagar, put them on her back and sent her away with the child. She wandered off into the desert of Beersheba. When the water was gone, she left the child under a shrub and went off 50 yards or so. She said, I can't watch my son die. As she sat, she broke into sobs. Verse 17. Meanwhile, God heard the boy crying. I love that. God heard the boy. The angel of God called from heaven to Hagar. What's wrong, Hagar? Don't be afraid. God has heard the boy and knows the fix he's in. Up now. Go get the boy. Hold him tight. I'm going to make him a great nation. And verse 19 just then, God opened her eyes. She looked. She saw a well of water. She went to it and filled her canteen, gave the boy a long, cool drink. And then this is the line I just love so much. God was on the boy's side as he grew up. God was on this outcast, this slave woman's son, 
this nobody, this person that was pushed to the side, God was on the boy's side. And if you know anything about the uh, Muslim faith, you know that this boy, Ishmael, was directly in the line of many great Arab nations and attributed to one of the prophets or leaders or uh, patriarchs of Islam. So however you interpret that, God did make him into a great nation. God was on this boy's side. One of the lectionary readings at the end of the passage of Jeremiah 20:13 says that he saves the weak from the grip of the wicked. This is what God does. And I don't know how you hear that. I, for some reason, and just with all the news going on, I heard that as, um, you know, what about, what about these people? What about George Floyd? Why wasn't he saved from the grip of the wicked on his neck? What about the indigenous people who are robbed of their childhood, their culture? What about, what about, what about? And this is where, uh, back to that quote at the beginning, we are called to learn the anguished cry of lament. When we don't have answers, when we, we don't know what to say about these things, that there is this practice that is vital for our spiritual faith, and that is uh, of grief and lament. Some of the Psalms, as Terry mentioned this morning, mention these deep cries of lament. Hear my prayer, God, listen to me. Or in the message again, Psalm 69, God, it's time for a break. God, answer in love, answer with your sure salvation. Rescue me. Don't let me go under all these, these, uh, these words crying up for help. Don't look the other way. Your servant can't take it. I'm in trouble. Answer me right now. Come close. Maybe you've had similar cries and uh, these are uh, these are laments. These are this is how we express our grief. Um, I thought this is interesting. Michael Gungor, who's a singer and has been a, a Christian singer for a long time and converted to Islam, uh, or uh, I think Buddhist. I think he converted to Buddhism. But anyways, he he said this and got in trouble for it. Um, approximately 70% of the Psalms are laments, approximately 0% of the top 150 CCLI songs, which are just songs that are most sung in churches, are laments. Which there's some truth to that. If we look at the top list of church songs, oh, why is it that they're not matched up uh, with this uh, expression of lament in the Psalms? Well, I want to continue with uh, Father could uh, how do you say his last name? Sorry, Katongol, uh, this African Catholic priest. And I'm going to put up my uh, this quote on the screen here. So he continues about lament, saying, Lament is not despair. It's not whining. It's not a cry into a void. Lament is a cry directed to God. It is the cry of those who see the truth of the world's deep wounds and the cost of seeking peace. It is the prayer of those who are deeply disturbed by the way things are. We are enjoined to learn to see and feel what the psalmists see and feel and to join our prayers with theirs. 
the journey of reconciliation is grounded in the practice of lament. And uh, sometimes I find it hard to lament, mainly because I'm a, a bit of an optimist and so just don't want to feel sad. Um, and I use multiple distractions to get anywhere but to feel sad. Um, well, I, I found some encouraging words from Brene Brown, who's a shame researcher, author. Uh, she says, you can't actually selectively numb emotion. So you can't actually pick which emotion to cancel out. When we numb hard feelings, we're also numbing joy, gratitude. We numb happiness. If you've seen the film Inside Out, um, it captures it so well. In order for a person to flourish, Joy must take her hands off the wheel and learn to make space for all the emotions. And if we welcome sorrow and sadness and grief, when the time is right, joy will return. Beautiful, beautiful picture of, uh, of how all the emotions work together. Um, I want to share uh, five practices of lament, and I'm not going to uh, talk about them. I just want to list them. If you want more information about this, go to Alistair and Julia Stern's podcast called Ordinary Matters. Alistair is a friend and a pastor in Vancouver with St. Peter's Fireside Church, and his wife is a counselor. And they talk in this episode about grief and lament, and they talk about these five practices. Maybe your assignment or your invitation this week is just to pick one and do it. They talk about letting yourself cry. Find a place to scream. Tell someone about your loss or who you miss. Write about your feelings and pain. Invite God to sit with you in the silence. So good and so helpful. And as we, as we acknowledge that evil injustice, there's an awareness. Then we grieve it. We grieve that evil injustice. It's lamenting. Then I think an important step too is acknowledging our in ourselves where that evil and injustice creeps up for us. And this is repentance. That word repent is. Uh, is a helpful word. The, the original Greek is metanoia or metanoia. And uh, the, the idea behind it is that it connotes uh, remorse and regret as well as active change, a transformed mind. And if you want to read more on this, just read the lectionary text this morning from Romans 6, 1 to 11. 
and essentially saying repentance is about changing our mind, repenting, being sorry, uh, remorseful, but then moving to some kind of action. So that's what I want to talk about this morning. And that's where I want to end is uh, not just in uh, the grieving and lamenting, but in what kind of action we can take. And I love these words by Bonhoeffer. He says that our being Christians today will be limited by two things, prayer and righteous action among people. All Christian thinking, speaking, and organizing must be born anew out of this prayer and action. And uh, there's a few things that we can do. Uh, one, and I'm going to paste it in the chat here right now. This is a document that I made up for y'all. It's a Google Doc, and I just added it into the chat there so you can see it. But this is some practical resources in how to lament and pray about injustice. Uh, so there's a, there's a great prayer, um, the Lord's Prayer for Justice. Uh, the Beatitudes are in there. Last week, Nelson, in his homily, he talked about uh, praying making that a habit to pray the Beatitudes and notice who the blessing goes to. Um, and then there's a, there's a version of that, a kind of a contemporary version of the Beatitudes. There's some other things in there. I also wanted to uh, mention a actual opportunity for us. And I'm wrapping up here quickly, uh, but more into action is uh, uh, we're going to be holding a, uh, a lament gathering in Crab Park this Wednesday at 7 p.m. It'll be short, probably about a half an hour long. And um, the purpose for this gathering is to lament and grieve the deaths of those uh, from overdoses in the last month. Um, I heard that the number of overdose deaths in May was greater than the entire uh, count of dead uh, from COVID. So just in May alone, that the overdose, the overdose death was higher than the death toll for, from COVID in its entirety for uh, our province. It's crazy. Um, and uh, just to, as I'm wrapping up here, the, uh, it can be really intimidating. We talk a lot as a church about joining God in the renewal of all things. And uh, just to quote one more of the lectionary texts, um, this is from Matthew chapter 10. I'm going to put it up on your screen, but um, this, it, uh, this Matthew says, and I'm reading from the message, is a large work I've called you into, but don't be overwhelmed by it. It's best to start small. Give a cool cup of water to someone who is thirsty, for instance. The smallest act of giving or receiving makes you a true apprentice. You won't lose out on a thing. Also, some practical action, and I'm going to get some help for this one. I mentioned the Crab Park gathering. I'm going to call Blythe and Kristen. We're going to we're going to weave in an announcement into the end of this sermon, and it's uh, it's about practical ways that we can take action. Um, so I want to ask Blythe and Kristen, wherever you are, to unmute and join us and tell us uh, about what is happening this summer and how we can get involved. Okay. Hello. You can hear me? <laughs> Good morning, Artisan. Um, Blythe and I are going to read from a letter that we wrote inviting the community of Artisan to engage together in some um, further anti-racist work. Uh, we hope you'll join us. It's a bit formal, so please bear with us. 
Um, here we go. So right now we are witnessing a powerful wave of resistance and protest against systemic racist, racism and police brutality as people from all corners of the globe are standing in solidarity with Black, Indigenous and people of colour. Many of us are asking how to be better allies and advocates for racial justice in our own communities, our work, our churches and in our world. It's clear that it's well past the time to actively join the fight against racism and work towards racial justice, demanding dismantling systems of white privilege in turn. So whether you began this long work years ago or maybe just last week, uh, many of us are in a space of needing to examine our own lives and our own privilege to better understand how we ourselves are implicated in racist systems, how we benefit from them, and how we perpetuate their injustice as well. This begins as inward work to be sure, but it is also inseparable from outward action and also inseparable from our upward relationship to God as well. And of course, it's inseparable from our relations to each other. So with that spirit in mind, we are inviting those who are interested in better understanding white privilege and doing the work towards becoming trustworthy anti-racist allies to join a focused summer book club. So groups of approximately seven people will read a chosen title over six weeks throughout July and August. Uh, three in-person discussions will be organized during this time where members will meet together, socially distanced in safe outdoor settings like backyards or quiet parks. Each group will be hosted by a facilitator familiar with anti-racist themes who will provide a framework for respectful dialogue as well as reflective and provocative discussion questions. The aim of these groups is to engage in a theoretical discussion about race and privilege, um, but instead to look hard at how we ourselves are personally implicated within the system of white privilege, and to ask deep reflective questions of ourselves, and to work towards becoming meaningful allies and agents of change in anti-racism. These reading groups will be spaces of learning and listening, but also of confession and repentance. As Scott, as Scott mentioned in his sermon, true repentance is to turn away from harmful behavior. Uh, so these groups are also spaces of transformation. That's their aim. Our aim and intent is to be transformed through the difficult work of confronting hard truths about ourselves and about our world. So we expect there will be discomfort in the process, but the goal is to create spaces where that uncomfortable work, that hard work, is welcomed and is held. All for the sake of us moving forward together into the Christ-like practice of anti-racism. So there's lots of books out there, amazing resources. Um, we've chosen the following three books as accessible introductions to these themes. Uh, white Fragility, Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism by Robin DiAngelo. I'm Still Here, Black Dignity in a World Made for Whiteness by Austin Channing Brown. And So You Want to Talk About Race by Ijeoma Oluol. Uh, this week, we're going to send you out links to sign up for these book clubs, as well as this very long letter. And you'll have a week to sign up for the title you'd like to read. Uh, once registration closes, we're going to slot folks into small reading groups, and then your host will reach out with more meeting details. Our aim is that this is just a beginning step in an ongoing process of engaging with anti-racist education and advocacy at Artisan. These groups are meant to be springboards into meaningful action and further transformation. They're an invitation into deeper discipleship with a God who advocates for, and as Scott mentioned, who sides with the marginalized and the oppressed. 
So by helping us all better understand our own relationship to white privilege and racism, we can all be more empowered and effective in dismantling white privilege in all the places it manifests, whether that's in our own individual lives or also together as a community of faith. So look for the community life email and we look forward to sharing more with you about this in the future weeks. Thank you, Kristen and Blythe. Really appreciate your energy and time on this. And uh, yeah, just so glad that this is happening. So we'll send out more info this Thursday. Oh man, so much uh, this morning, a lot to uh, process. And um, just wanna take a few minutes, not long, but to respond as we come to the Lord's table. And I'm gonna invite Jenny to sing another song. And in those three to five minutes, let's just pause if we're able to in our place where we are and just to consider what's been said and how we need to proceed from here. And I just want to share a quick story, but uh, as many of you know, there was a tent city that popped up in Crab Park uh, in the last couple of weeks and since has been dismantled. The residents of the park have been asked to leave and now another park has popped up in Strathcona Park. And uh, uh, me, uh, along with a couple of others, we went down to this tent city just to observe and see what was going on down there and to help and to be an ally where we could. And uh, there was this really beautiful moment where um, they had the sacred fire and some First Nations elders tending to it in the middle of this tent city in this camp. And there was the police officers the number started to grow where there's about 40 or 50 of them surrounding the park. There were protesters. I mean, some, I don't even know if they knew why they were there, but some were very passionate and supportive of the residents. One young lady, probably in her mid twenties, she had a black megaphone and was shouting. I asked someone, um, hey, excuse me, who, who's that, uh, that woman with the megaphone? No idea. And why is she shouting? What is she saying? Or No idea. Like, okay, so there's a mix of people in this park. You have the First Nations elders, the homeless residents. And uh, one of the First Nations uh, people in the group, they started handing out cedar branches and they gave it to everyone. They didn't exclude anyone. And they, even to myself and to the people I was with, and they invited us to put a cedar branch on the sacred fire to say a prayer. And it was a, such a powerful moment where I felt like uh, the spirit of God was so heavily present where uh, people from all walks of life, different people didn't matter on their belief or their creed, whoever they were, they came to this fire and they offered a prayer. Even officers who were tasked to evict them came and laid cedar branches on this fire. And I know a lot is behind this. I know that it's complicated, but in that moment, what I observed was something akin to what we're about to do remotely here is come to the table. And that is, it's a, a leveling act where everyone comes and is invited to participate in the deep and radical welcome of Jesus Christ. And that's what I wanna call you to this morning, Artisan. As part of our response, we're going to listen and sing, and then uh, Nelson's going to wrap up with a few announcements here. <laughs>